welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Um, I'm, uh, well, we're doing what we're doing today. I'll get into what that is, uh, a little bit, a little bit later. Tediously, I'm sure I'll, uh, explain what we're doing. Um, but I feel like, uh, uh, no, actually this isn't true, but I, I was like, I'm ready to batten down the hatches and do the full, the final push for the end of the year. Uh, because I got, I got out of the way, the stuff that I had to watch for this episode, but I'm realizing I actually have other stuff that I have to watch. There's always other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's always other stuff. Like I, I felt very much the same. Not that I, not that I, I didn't watch as much stuff in preparation for this episode as I wanted to. And yet, but I went, but I did see a lot of end of the year stuff. Um, uh, but then, and then in the midst of that, I accepted a five movie uh, Blu-ray set right, uh, that yeah. I need to review. It's like, why did I do that? Um, it's going to be fun. Do, I, will it? I think so. I think it probably will be as well. Yeah. But yeah. So um, yeah. So once I get that out of the way, it's end of the year all the way. Um, okay. So before we get to the topic yeah. i had something stupid to talk about oh good that's fun um so i have uh, a commute and starting in september i'm gonna have an even an even longer commute more often um but uh and i've i don't really listen to podcasts anymore and i was like so I, i've been listening to audiobooks and and all of that and i'm you burn through them pretty quick and then you're like, okay, well what's the next Hmm. one? So I just listened to like an entire audio book about Richard Nixon. And then I did another one called the president's club, which is about the relationships that presidents have with each other after they're out of office. It's a, it's fascinating. But then I was like, I'm kind of in the mood for a novel. And then I don't exactly remember how I got from one point to the next, but I arrived at the novelization of Alien. Oh, um, see, uh, I thought you were going to talk. I thought you were going to say because you were talking about presidents. I thought you were going to talk about you read that novel that Bill Clinton co-wrote. <laughs> oh yes, uh, no, I think I'm good. I, I I've tried reading because I think it's like sort of an espionage yeah. type thing. Yeah, I've tried reading those. They they just don't grab me. Um, like I, I've tried Tom Clancy. It just does nothing for me. I don't think I've ever it's read in many it. ways. It's the same principles as like a crime novel, but just on a different scale. And somehow once we scale it up, I lose interest. Um, but anyway, so, uh, I don't remember how I arrived at the novelization of alien, but it's written by Alan Dean Foster. Who's done a billion of these things. Yeah. Um, go to guy. And I was curious, like, people make fun of novelizations and I guess understandably so, but it's really just like you're adapting something from one medium into another, which we do the other way all the time. Yeah. And so it's like, so what would, and I've never read a novelization. Oh, I read them all the time as a kid. Oh really? Okay. Because I was not allowed to see PG 13 movies until I was like 11 or 12 and not allowed Got to it. see already movies. So when I was a kid, it was my way. Like I wasn't allowed to see gremlins two because it was PG 13. Mm-hmm. So I read the novelization because I was allowed to same with alien three was rated R, which is, that's an alien Alan Dean Foster one as well. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> um, I didn't say where I've, where I ended my little journey. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as, 
as a kid, I would, when you get the uh, scholastic thing at, at school and you sure. can order uh, books, I would oh, always I go that, straight yeah. to the novelizations uh, because that was how I got to experience movies that I wasn't allowed to see. It's, it really is interesting because you, they, you know, they are adapting it in the case of alien they're adap- He's adapting it from the screenplay, which was very different than the movie itself. Um, and yeah, you should, uh, not you should, you don't need to, but the novelization of natural born killers wow. is based on Quentin Tarantino's screenplay. It's wildly different from the movie. How ca- that's the other thing is like, it would have to be. Yeah. Um, and what's more is there's no real description of the alien itself. There's a lot of description of the face hugger, but the, it, the face hugger has an eye, mm. uh, in the novelization. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, I finished that and then I moved on to aliens. Uh, but then for some reason that wasn't working. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. So I skipped to alien three and then finally I, I found a, a, a version of it, of aliens that was working. So now I'm kind of listening to those back and forth. Um, <laughs> and it's all, and they're all Alan Dean Foster. And so there's a nice consistency to the way that it's written, but a few things that I've noticed. Number one is who they get the, their choice of narrator which is say the person who reads it yeah. for alien. It's Peter Guinness, one of the actors from alien three aliens is William hope who does the voice who plays Gorman in aliens. Okay. Alien three is Lance Henriksen. Oh, who played Bishop and then is briefly in alien three alien resurrection, which is not Alan, Alan Dean Foster, but that's William hope again. So like, what's going on here? Like it's, <laughs> you know, you don't have to do this. And I haven't gotten to the, I haven't gotten to the Gorman character yet in oh, aliens. Right. I find myself wondering if he's going to just fall into just acting the character. Yeah. Um, but not, anyway, the other thing that gets me is, so we're going from the screenplays and though, uh, Alan Dean Foster's style is fairly uniform. That's not to say that the stories themselves are. And there's a, a, a major shift in the type of dialogue you get from alien to aliens. There's a lot I love about aliens, and I like a lot of those characters, or rather often characterizations. Um, but his dialogue is like, it's often very, it's either way too specific mm-hmm. or ridiculously broad. And. And what's more is like what you see is what you get, like because he's the director and he wrote the screenplay. There's not much difference between the screenplay as he wrote it and the finished film. Granted, this is from the uh, essentially the full screenplay. So we get the Hadley's Hope stuff. Um, So as I'm as I'm listening to it and William Hope does a a good job with it uh, as I'm listening to him, like, yeah, when it's like when you're just as as good as, as William Hope is doing, it's like you need actors to sell James mm-hmm. Cameron dialogue if it can be sold at all. Um, and it can, I, I don't mean to speak ill of that, but like you've got such a great ensemble in aliens, uh, each of them finding their own voice within the character. Uh, but when you have one person reading it all, it's like, this is not great dialogue. And so like, <laughs> and it's something I already kind of knew, but in a, but through very specific circumstances like this, it really solidified, um, something that you and I were actually talking about in a soon to come, uh, Patreon episode in which we're talking about like Titanic winning all these Oscars, but not being nominated for screenplay. And both of us are like, 
Well, <laughs> that's not super surprising. Not and, and Avatar, I think, wasn't nominated either because he's just not. He's a good big picture storyteller, but yeah. as a dia- writer of dialogue, not the best. But um, anyway, so I, I, I assume I, I've done everything I can to justify this decision that I've made to listen to audiobooks of movie novelizations. I don't think you have to justify it. I feel like people are going to make fun of me. Uh, well, you know, I'm assuming because you're driving, you're listening to it in your car speakers. Of course. It would probably sound better. James Cameron's dialogue would sound better if you were listening to it on your tweakedaudio.com earbud. Or it's so crystal clear it sounds much worse. <laughs> and, so listen, tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Not while we're driving, though. So uh, Tyler was not using them right. for the for William Hope's voice. But I was using them today to listen to uh, the only thing that I'm interested in about the new HBO Watchmen series, which is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score, which I really enjoyed because I tend to like their stuff. It's getting nothing but good reviews, and I couldn't care less. Don't care. Yeah, and Featuring I would say the the snippets of dialogue that are included on the the soundtrack album oh, okay. did not make me want to watch it anymore. Jeremy Irons is an elderly Ozymandias, and I think it's... Is it Jean Smart, who's an actress I like a lot? Oh, really? Um, I didn't know as she was like in it. I think aging Silk Spectre. Oh, that's and cool. It's like, I okay, like Jean Smart. I'm I'm listening, but I just don't want to watch it at all. Who's playing Doctor Manhattan? Is I it, don't. I feel like it would have to be Billy Crew, right? Billy if he's Cruz, still yeah. around. Uh, maybe he left. Maybe he left Earth by now. Well, he'd left Earth by the end of the movie. Right. Maybe uh, I guess he didn't come back. Um. <laughs> anyway. Sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Tyler? Yes. I want you, uh, well, right now the, 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 the file that we're using uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in this recording program is still unnamed. I'll name it when I save it. What will so, you name it? Well, you can't, uh, as I'm saying, you can't see the name, the, the, the name of the file, the name of the episode yet, but the person listening can. Sure. If they look down and see that this is, because this isn't a movie journal or a Patreon episode or some other bonus thing, this is a numbered episode. Yeah. It's canonical. Uh, and they'll see that the number of the episode uh, ends in a zero, and yet it is not evenly divisible by the number 50. Mm-hmm. And that might have clued them on in already longtime listeners yeah. are way ahead of me on this and way ahead of the neophytes. But uh, you might have figured out what we do for every episode, the number of which ends in zero, but it's not evenly divided by 50. And that's that we profile the career of a film artist of some sort, um, generally someone who has passed recently. You know, you've won me over. <sighs> After so many years of me hating you doing that, it's now my favorite part of profile episodes. <laughs> I intentionally like don't I'm sure it comes across I don't like prepare at all to do no, it. I know I, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I jump into the deep end and just see where <laughs> Start I... Start swimming. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, which is an approach that would probably uh, have been appreciated by the uh, Maverick artist sure. that we are uh, going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the career of the late Peter Fonda. Not Henry Fonda, uh, who is been passed for a long time mm-hmm. uh didn't keep me from every time i went to search for his movies for peter Fonda's movies for typing henry and then going sure. no no no, peter oh um, wow okay uh I, I don't know why i'm just uh maybe i'm just that big henry fonda fan um but yeah uh i had this was actually an interesting research thing for me because i had seen a number of the big ones mm-hmm. already and so I ended up seeing a lot of like weird cameo and guest star roles. And there are a lot more of them you'd, than you would. Yeah. Think. There are some I didn't get to too, but yeah, yeah, he was making a lot. Of, he spent the last quarter century of his career, mostly just popping up in things. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we'll get to that, but, um, uh, I guess I'll say like starting off. I, uh, it's weird. I, I like to start saying here's, Here's what here, here's who the profile uh, was in my mind before I started the research. Sure. But it's weird to not to say that without like it's going to be hard for me to talk about that without talking about the limey, which we're going to talk about later. Right. But um, the limey was probably my first real introduction to to Peter Fonda. I I didn't see Easy Rider until probably two or three years after after the limey came out. Um, I saw Easy Rider first. Okay. Then I saw Yuli's Gold. Oh, then I right. saw the Limey. Um, and so, and I, I like that that's the order that I saw them in, um, even though, like, Yuli's Gold really has nothing to do with the other two. That's actually, you because I realized when you said that, that yeah, I saw the Limey first, then Yuli's Gold, then Easy Rider, but because Yuli's Gold. And then this is borne out by the the stuff I watched. The preparation is an outlier. It's not a full outlier because there are some other ones too. Yes, especially but, later in his career, that type of role is something he would take on, even in smaller roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, in, in the Limey and an Easy Rider, he is playing someone who is an embodiment of an idea of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a through line here of the movies undercutting that uh, that I think we'll get into when we get into the 60s and 70s especially. Um, but uh, that's who he uh, he was. That's that's why there, there's a thing. <laughs> I watched three different movies from the 90s onward in which his character uses the phrase far out. And it feels like the director being like, hey, we have Peter Fonda. We should have him say something like far out. Uh, that's that I think is something that in the movies that I have seen, the movies I watched and then also just researching stuff. I'm not going to watch Wild Hogs. All right. Yeah, I didn't watch I'm just Wild not going to. But it doesn't mean I didn't watch anything bad. I watched some bad right. stuff. But, but that's the thing is Wild Hogs is a motorcycle movie. Just like Ghost Rider. And so like and then The Limey is a movie that reflects on the 60s. Like Peter Fonda was cast I would say sometimes incorrect, like he should not have been cast as far as the role and what his limitations were as an actor, but he was cast certainly in start maybe in the nineties, but maybe even in the eighties as well. He was cast maybe just as often as an icon 
yeah over as an yeah. actual actor yeah well yeah we'll definitely see a lot of that coming up although the 80s it always seems to happen whenever we do these profiles that there's like a lost decade for me i've sure. not seen the single 1980s peter fonda movie nor have i we we're gonna jump from the 70s to the 90s for yeah. me um but so that's weird because we're starting so it's weird that he embodied that mm-hmm. uh this sort of like representing a generation representing a kind of idea of cool because the first thing we're going to watch this movie that we're going to talk about i think um uh, and stop me if i'm wrong is a movie from 1964 a movie called lilith um directed by um robert rawson uh, oh, okay. who made is, the hustler uh, made the hustler that's right um and is Which a, recently had a sequel hustlers it's like yeah, aliens that's right um <laughs> they're everywhere these hustlers uh, <laughs> <laughs> um it's a war uh, a young Warren Beatty vehicle. Oh, sure. Um, Lilith, uh, in which it's, uh, obviously this 1964 predates the graduate, but feels like it has a lot of the sure. graduate slash catch in the ride type of, um, Warren Beatty plays, a, a, a recent, uh, vet, um, not veterinarian, a veteran, mm-hmm. um, who takes a job, he operates at, on animals, but he doesn't have a license. Right. Um, he takes a job at a local sort of like posh private sanitarium in which there's a patient named Lilith played by Gene Seberg, um, with whom he, uh, becomes obsessed. Uh, and I recently learned that Gene Seberg considered this her favorite role that she ever played. Uh, she is really good in, in the movie. Um, and, but surprisingly given what we're going to be talking about, uh, and, and how Peter Fonda was used here, he plays another patient who is also obsessed with, with Lilith, but it is far less requited mm-hmm. than her, than Warren Beatty's feelings because he is a sort of ineffectual nerdy milk toast type. So not Peter Fonda, but he hadn't become that right. yet. And I mean, I mean, and it's, I, bu- I buy it. Like he's kind of a gangly. Yes. Type. That's a, yeah, yeah. They use his height. His like, he's where he wears glasses. He often wears glasses in his movies, but they become cooler sunglasses later yeah. here. He's, he, he's very much a sort of, uh, Tweety intellectual type, but has some obviously has some mental illness problems. That's why he's mm-hmm. he's there. He ends up becoming like it's a it's a supporting role, but it's unlike a lot of the cameo type stuff. He'll end up doing it's a very large supporting role. It's yeah. maybe third or fourth oh, okay. role in in the movie, and, and and his his arc ends up being a huge emotional core um, to the movie uh, uh, as well. So um, yeah, I can't because so much of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, well, I mean, we'll get into his starring, like leading man period. So much of what we're going to be talking about is supporting roles and cameos. I can't go into detail on the movies themselves that much. Sure. You know, I'd love to sit here and talk Lilith because it's a really fascinating movie. Um, uh, it's sometimes a little bit amateurish, but um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting work. Um, also stars um, uh, Kim Hunter, um and oh yeah uh as a married couple a young jessica walter oh and gene hackman oh um yeah i don't you don't see a lot of like what's the earliest gene hackman role you think of when you think of gene hackman bonnie and clyde uh okay and uh, that's that's 67 three years later so yeah, yeah it's a young 
youngish Gene Hackman. He never Gene Hackman never looked super young, but it's <laughs> right. a youngish Gene Hackman. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's uh, and that's, his voice has not yeah, really changed that's over right. the years. Yeah. He always had that kind of husk um, to him. But uh, I mean, Jessica Walter is still a very fetching woman to this day. Sure. But uh, in 1964, man, she was a hottie. That's not <laughs> the point here. But let's move on. Uh, I don't know what's next for you. I'm jumping to yeah, Easy Rider is, is next for me. Okay, so I'm jumping to 1966, which is the movie that, of all the things that I watched in preparation, I saw some movies that I thought were really dumb, and I saw some movies I really liked. The one that really blew me away in ways I did not expect is 1966's The Wild Angels, directed by Roger Corman. I've, I've is, heard great things, yes. A great thing in ways that I didn't like. Roger Corman is known for exploitation and mm-hmm. trash. And this is certainly that this is certain, but, but it's also, it reminded me the movie, the more recent movie I kept thinking of is good time. Oh, okay. In that it's about a guy who's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I think there's probably a lot of people, maybe hell's angels themselves who saw the wild angels in 1966. And were like, fuck yeah. Sure. But I think that's not what the movie is about. The movie's about the hell's angels being bad people and um uh peter Fonda's character is sort of the president of the chapter um maybe starting to realize that but there's a thing that'll come up obviously you've seen easy rider but this comes up in more movies than i expected is there's a fatalism to a lot of the movies that he's in yes so absolutely the wild angels is very much a movie about this guy member of the hell's angels kind of realizing that they're shitty people that the like because like they they essentially like they get their friend killed and then they kidnap a preacher to hold an impromptu funeral service for their friend that they get killed um and that funeral service they end up tying up the preacher bringing a bunch of booze and stuff into the church and holding an all-night rager in which multiple women are raped it's not a fun yeah movie and so the 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 story is the story of this character realizing that he's among shitty people, but it's not a story of him overcoming that and doing something about right. it because it's, that's not the kind of movies he made. But it's a movie like, from the beginning. I forgot to mention uh, it's a Roger Corman movie. Dick Miller does show up very briefly at the beginning um, as a character who is a World War II vet who is yelling at the Hells Angels because the Hells Angels like to wear things like swastikas and iron crosses and stuff. Mm. And not not because they're white supremacists necessarily. Some of them might right. be, but I think they just, uh, it's shocking. It's shocking. Yeah. And it was cool. And so, yeah, Dick Miller plays a character who's yelling at mm. Bruce Dern and Peter Fonda about like, you know, I used to get shot at and shoot at guys who wore those things. Yeah. You know, I, I tried to kill people who wore those things. Um, it's a great, great Dick Miller moment, but, uh, yeah, really I, like the movie really blew me away. I did I not saw expect an extended clip from it. Uh, I think we did in our road movies class. Were you in, that I, was class? in that class. Oh, okay. I was not in that yeah, class. Yeah. I was in a road movies class, uh, Ron Felzone. And, um, yeah, we saw, cause we watched easy Rider. I had seen it already, but we watched easy Rider. but, uh, we saw all these different, uh, uh, like motorcycle movies of the like late fifties and sixties. Like you we know. could do an episode. We need to have an expert on, but there sure. are so many motorcycle, so many oh, biker yeah. movies that we could do a great episode. Anyway. That was Hollywood really trying to tap into a culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's that fatalism. Like when looking at these things, like 
I don't know how much of a creative force Peter Fonda is uh, or, or was when he's in these movies, even in smaller roles, but like maybe he's just attracted to something, but like his last, I think it's his last line in, in easy rider, like could be the summation of right. so many yeah. of his characters yeah. and yeah. their attitude towards the world. Um, a couple of things I'll say, Nancy Sinatra and Diane Ladd are also in wild angels. But another thing, uh, that I had, I had not seen a clip from the, uh, from wild angels, but I had heard a clip mm-hmm. because, uh, and it's used extensively in the world's end, but the primal scream song loaded has the clip of Peter Fonda. Someone says, what do you want? He says, we want to be free. We want to be free to be ourselves and do what we want to do. I want to get loaded. <laughs> and like the way the primal scream use it, it's like a rallying cry in yeah. the movie. It's like kind of a sad moment of like someone asking what he wants and him saying that. And I think we're supposed to kind of realize like those are pretty paltry goals. Yeah. And like I, it's, it's a, or that it starts I, very lofty and then it very quickly moves into, we want to get low to get loaded. Yeah. Like that's wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, uh, really blown away by the wild angels, but also, uh, I, in, in modern terms, there's, there's just stuff, in the movie that is um, really upsetting. <laughs> like the, the, I would definitely say if you, uh, if, if this is something you require, definitely trigger warnings for, for like I mentioned, there's multiple sexual assaults and uh, it's, it's an upsetting movie. In a lot and of you are pretty positive that it is not endorsing this behavior or thinking it's cool, that it is mostly condemning it. I feel that way, but the movie is not, being polemic about that. Okay. Polemical about that. Um, I definitely think given how the movie ends, which I won't get into, it would be hard to make the case that this is pro hell's angels. Okay. But I will bet that hell's angels at the time watched it. and oh, thought sure. It was a good, <laughs> uh, a good look. Okay. So I have not seen the trip. That was one of the big ones that I missed. Yeah. Um, I have seen, or did watch 1968's Spirits of the Dead, which okay. is a triptych uh, anthology film of three short stories, uh, three short films based on based very loosely on Edgar Allan Poe short stories. You've got the first one is directed by Roger Vadim. Um, the second one is directed by Louis Malle and stars Alain Delon. Mm. Um, the third one is directed by Federico Fellini and stars Terrence Stamp. Wow. Um, oh, Terrence Stamp. Uh, but the first one, Roger Vadim, who would the next year, maybe in later, maybe in the same year, direct Barbarella, mm-hmm. uh, directs the, the, the first segment, which stars Jane Fonda, which means the reason is that spirits of the is notable is this is the only time that Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda ever acted alongside one another. And it's interesting because by all accounts, they're pretty close. Well, uh, well, sorry. No, they, uh, I think they, in old, their older years maybe they got to be close i don't remember well i don't know how close they were at the time but let me tell you what the premise is of this short story which is that jane fonda is a completely amoral filthy rich like it takes place in i don't know olden like medieval-ish times or whatever she's a rich you know lady of uh you know an, an estate and she spends her day idly like there's a one of the first scenes is she and her like lady friends um take a local peasant boy and hang him from a tree like from his neck hang him and then take turns shooting arrows at the rope to see if they can 
cut him down in time, which means they're risking not cutting him down in time yeah. or risking shooting him with an arrow. Yeah. I this is fun to aiming them. super hard either. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is their idea of fun. This is not good people. And then, but she has a family, a cousin, uh, played by Henry Fonda, who is also a landowner. Sorry, Peter Fonda. I, and I'm going to keep doing that. Peter Fonda, who is also a well, wealthy, you know, he's not a serf, but he's a much more, uh, lower modest. Okay. Um, and, uh, she falls in love with him and he spurns her and that's where the plot kicks in. So if you ever wanted to see Jane Fonda making goo goo eyes at her own brother, watch spirits of the dead. Um, it's worth watching anyway. It's really good, but it did. It was like, it's uncomfortable. So when I said they were close, yeah, that's why I was like, well, uh, like, look, our relationship has already peaked with this movie. So you know what? (laughs) We don't need to work together again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, good movie, but, um, yeah, so I guess, I, I guess wild as far as the persona, of Peter Fonda wild angels is the one of the least of things we're talking about sure. today that established it. But what solidified it is 1969's easy rider. Yeah. I've been talking too long. You go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, when people talk about it, when film, even when film people talk about it, they do tend to couch it in. It is so of its time. Very like in a way that, that a lot of movies aren't, it is so rooted in, like the young, the youth culture of the sixties combined with like a motorcycle, uh, element, uh, and then drug cult. Like it's just so, and it's directed in that style as, as well. Um, like, and when you watch it by far, the most mainstream and accessible part of it is Jack Nicholson and the role that he is playing. Um, whereas the rest of it, it just, it feels, and I say this in a good way, it feels slap together like almost like let's hey let's make a movie on the road yeah um and but i know that there is a script i know that they still put work into it but it's such a strange film and and i definitely know that because when i watched it i asked my dad about it and he and my mom saw it at the time and they thought of it as like this really important and it is important, but like this really important, really resonant film. And I, myself, like it wasn't resonant with me at all. Uh, cause I didn't live in that time. Uh, and so, but looking back, but as I got older, so I kind of dismissed it as just a relic. I, a I need to rewatch it for this reason, because okay. I think I saw it at a time when I was like, fucking hippies. Um, and now I think yeah. back on it and I'm like, uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, like the immediacy of it, uh, makes me think, yeah, I, I would probably like that a lot more. The immediacy and the fatalism. And by the way, the mm-hmm. fatalism, I'm not talking about the rednecks that kill our main characters. It's fatalistic before that. Right. You've yeah. got captain America saying, uh, played by Peter Fonda, not the captain America, but that's what he goes by. Yeah. Um, you know, his friend played by, uh, Dennis Hopper, like he still seems kind of upbeat and all that. And, uh, Captain America says we blew it. Mm-hmm. And in the, and that's the thing is in that moment, it's not just fucking hippies because this is what you're talking about. It's that self-aware sudden assessment mm. that's internal and external of like, and when I first saw the film, that line still worked for me. And then when I saw it again, it worked even better. And I'm like, I know exactly who he means when he says we. He's not talking just about the two of them. 
and blew it. It's like that to me is it's like that line from uh, what is it? The wild, not the wild one. The wild angels. The wild angels. The wild one is Marlon Brando, yeah. right? As a boat, Bi- uh, motorcyclist. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but that line of like, we want to be free. We want to do this. And then they immediately settle for something so much more. Yeah. So much smaller. And I feel like this idea, it's like, hey, we're out. We're searching for the American dream. This is what it's going to be. And we just wound up having a lot of sex and doing drugs, which is all well and good. But it's so, they just fall so short of like these lofty ambitions. And I feel like that is a note of maturity uh, in the film. And I think that Peter Fonda does such a great job of, you know, I, I do think that, and I don't say this in a negative way, I think he's a limited actor, but he conveys intelligence, he conveys introspection, though he sort of la- starts to lack it in uh, the limey uh, by design, but he's introspective. It's how he can be in the middle, he can be the president of the Hell's Angels uh-huh. uh, and still feel conflicted about one, it. One chapter. One chapter, pardon me. Yeah. Um, but uh, and still feel conflicted about their behavior, how he can spend this whole movie going alongside Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper doesn't question a moment of what they've been doing. And he not only questions it, but comes to the conclusion that, no, we we ruined we screwed this up completely. Um, and I look at, at Peter Fonda as someone who's just tremendously smart and sensitive and still trying to hold on to those ideals, but very at a at a very young age, realizing like these are only going to take me so far, and I'm probably going to mess it up along the way. Um, and that's something that I think carries into his more substantial roles as he got older. Um, and it's something that makes him a unique and interesting actor. Uh, all right. The next movie is the first movie he directed. The only movie he directed that I've seen. He only directed like three movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first one is the hired hand. Um, and this is also, I think his first pairing with Warren Oates, who we go on to make like four or five movies with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's crucial because I think another thing that is going to come up in a lot of his movies, especially in the sixties and seventies, um, is male camaraderie. Sure. Um, and, and fraternity and, and male friendship. And it's not always, um, buddy, buddy, you know, mm-hmm. there's, um, uh, resentment, there's competition, there's posturing and, and stuff like that. But, uh, here you've got Peter Fonda and Warren Oates as, as friends, um, who, uh, Warren Oates accompanies Peter Fonda back to his, his ranch where his wife lives, where Peter Fonda's wife li- lives. Did I say Henry Fonda again? Okay. No, I you, so. you gave me a look. Yeah, like I sorry, said, no. uh, back to where Peter Fonda is, li- but where he hasn't been home in years and years. And his wife is not happy to see him because she, he left her alone. Yeah. And so he makes an arrangement to her that he'll essentially stay on as help mm-hmm. at, uh, uh, on, on the farm or whatever, and try to work his way back into, uh, her, you know, good, good graces, graces and yeah. her bed. Um, uh, uh, and really like the, um, but, but the, this relationship between, uh, I almost did it, uh, between Peter Fonda and, and Warren Oates, um, is just as, if not as, if not more important than the relationship between Peter Fonda and Verna Bloom, who plays, uh, his, uh, I guess, 
on his heretofore estranged wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that really uh, sticks out to me about the hired hand in this is because of when I saw it. Um, so this is a movie that did not do well when it came out. Um, and was, as far as reviews was given kind of mixed or tepid reviews. But then in 2001, it was remastered played festivals and was re-released on DVD, uh, by Sundance. That's when I bought it. That's when I saw it, which happened to be about the time in film school that I was taking a class on optical printing. Oh, sure. Um, which for those young people out there before we had computers to do things like dissolves and mat shots, which, I hope they still yeah. use that class. Um, I, yeah, like, I, I, it's, I it's a great thing to learn. It, yeah. Um, it was a very tedious process. You look at something like a star Wars, sorry, a new hope. It's just called star Wars. Yeah. Um, and you know, all of those special effects shots in there were done on optical printers, which means you shot one thing, you shot another thing and you yeah. slotted them into an optical printer and you laid them over one another. Uh, and that's how you did things like dissolves or, or Matt and Matt's even more complex. Cause you had to like block out a part of, yeah. and you're talking about what looks on the screen, like, Oh, you're blocking out a third of the screen. Well, you're blocking out a third of a frame, a 35 millimeter yeah. frame. It's a very painstaking, uh, thing to do. And it's a fascinating class. And I'm glad I took. And because it was on my mind, the hired hand is so visually dreamlike. It is full of dissolves. It is every see, every shot seems to dissolve into mm. the next shot. And I remember watching it because of this class being like, this must have taken forever <laughs> <laughs> to do all these dissolves. It's just constant. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a, a good movie and, and definitely worth, worth checking out. 1971's the hired hand. I haven't now, seen his other two, sorry, his other two directorial efforts, which are called Wanda Nevada and Idaho transfer. So uh, that up today. I've not seen the hired hand. I was going to borrow it from you, but I was in your apartment looking at your movie shelf. I knew you had it on DVD and yet for some reason I still couldn't find it. Uh, um, I confirmed this morning that it's there. So, I don't so know uh, but I do remember when you bought it and when you watched it, you then watched it with the commentary. Okay. And like, it's weird that I remember this and you don't, yeah, but I it's, don't. it also just seems so Peter Fonda esque. Um, so there's a scene where his character is, I believe naked. Um, and Peter Fonda during the commentary goes, there I am bare assed, but not embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Which just seems that's like great. Such, like, that's cause, so cause the commentary is, you know, years later. So it's like, yeah, that's the kind of thing like an aging hippie who also has an eye towards Westerns would say, uh, hmm. All right. Uh, also in 1971, Dennis Hopper, who had directed Easy Rider and co-starred in it, um, directed and starred in the last movie, which Peter Fonda is in very, very briefly. Have you seen the last movie? No, I've heard good yeah, and oh, bad yeah. things it's about good. it. Yeah. It's good. It's definitely good. Um, uh, as much as I sometimes Dennis, I, having seen that documentary, the American dreamer about Dennis Hopper at this age, mm-hmm. um, and being so full of himself that I'm like, Oh, I hate that. I like this movie, but I like it a lot. Yeah. But, um, he's the premise a fa- is he's a fascinating figure to me. Dennis. Yeah. Hopper. Uh, so the premise is that, uh, the movie starts, they're shooting, uh, Dennis Hopper is, a, he works as like a horse wrangler slash stunt man on a Western that's shooting in this small town in Peru. Uh, and then the production wraps up and leaves and he stays behind and uh, uh, the movie just sort of follows the aftermath of that. So the opening scenes are full of cameos um, and uh, Chris Christopherson, Peter Fonda, Russ Tamblin, Dean Stockwell. There's a bunch of people who are just like supposed to be playing characters in the movie. Yeah. Um, and then they disappear and they're not, So I'm mentioning it because technically Peter Fonda's in it, mm-hmm. but 
he doesn't do anything. Okay. <laughs> um, I think do, he, he's doing a favor for his friend. But also, I get the impression he got a free trip to Peru. Sure. Because <laughs> yeah. like, uh, that's what I kept thinking. It's like, wow, all these guys just got a free trip to Peru to come down, dress as cowboys, and like go bang, bang. And then like, <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I think the only thing you see him do is uh, you see Peter Fonda as a character shooting somebody and that's like and then oh i think he's and he plays guitar with christmas hours and anyway next up is a movie holy shit that i love this movie okay 1974 i this one came out of nowhere i'd heard the name because it's a very catchy name didn't know what it was about did not know how great it was 1974's dirty mary crazy larry have you seen dirty mary crazy larry no i've heard the name many times it's uh, here's my controversial hot take okay dirty mary crazy larry better than smoking the bandit that's what i'm gonna say that's an interesting hot take <laughs> because <laughs> it has a very similar okay. premise uh, uh although a more violent one in some ways uh although weirdly because pg-13 didn't exist yet it's rated pg i would uh, this is not a pg movie but um I have to look up the guy who is the, the, the co-star Adam Rourke, not an actor that I know, but Peter Fonda and Adam Rourke again, play friends with a sort of contentious relationship. Peter Fonda is a NASCAR driver. Adam Rourke is a mechanic who you kind of, their backstory gets teased out that you realize Adam Rourke's character, whose name is Deke is sober now. And you realize that like his drinking might have led to, um, Peter Fonda's character not having the success uh, in the NASCAR circuit. Hmm. Anyway, basically the movie opens with a heist. They steal a bunch of money because their plan is to buy or soup up some new car to get into uh, a race. And while they're on there, the the heist part is the easiest part. This is smoking and the bandit style. The hardest part is getting out of the state. And but they haven't planned to a T. What they hadn't accounted for is that uh, Peter Fonda, his name is Larry, um, his one night stand from the night before decides to tag along and causes problems. She's played by Susan George from Straw Dogs. Okay. Um, And she's amazing. The three of them together are a great team. The movie is, uh, it's like a, it's, it's funny and it has amazing car stuff. Like, cars doing flips and blowing up and rolling yeah. and, and and getting all smashed up so it has all that stuff from smoking the bandit but it's also it has a darker edge to it mm-hmm. um you've got vic morrow as the oh. um the detective who's trying to catch okay. them before they leave the state um and uh, i like vic morrow but i have to assume he's not quite as enjoyable as uh, jackie gleason uh no not quite yeah it's he's not really he is funny in his own way, actually, because um, uh, there's a part, weirdly, there's, okay, this isn't, obviously no one was thinking this at the time because it hadn't happened yet, but I couldn't help but notice that Vic Morrow's character spends like the last third of the movie in a helicopter, which is like how Vic Morrow died as oh, a helicopter oh, accident, um, uh, or one could say that uh, John Landis uh, through negligence sure. killed Vic Morrow and two children with a helicopter. Uh, if you wanted to put it that way, um, is that the uh, way you're putting it? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. it's complex, but, uh, I'm not 
I always hesitate to praise John Landis. He's made some good movies, some really good movies. I mean, American sure. Werewolf in London is one of the one of my favorite movies, literally of all time. But uh, uh, not happy with him, I guess, for whatever that's worth. Um, but yeah, so his he's not a he's not apoplectically funny like like Jackie Gleason. Right. He's more dryly funny. Like there's when the helicopter pilot lands and he's like uh, he's like, look, I only have forty five minutes of of fuel. He's like, why didn't you stop? He's like. Cause I was told to come here and pick you up right away. And I follow orders and Vic Morrow goes good. Cause I give a lot of them. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great moment. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got as his boss, Vic Morrow's boss, the captain, a character actor, um, uh, you'd know if you saw him, um, Kenneth Toby. Yeah. I was looking at the, uh, I was looking at yeah. the, um, cast list and yeah he's been in a bunch of stuff yeah he's great too so yeah uh dirty mary crazy larry is just a real good car action movie um susan george is i don't know i, I, I like i don't want to i'm not being like purient and saying like she's really hot in the movie i mean she is very interactive and is uh often wearing very little but she uh she is so what's the word I'm looking for beyond charming. She's, Mm. she's enchanting. Uh, she's bubbly, but not in a a dumb way at all. I'm not saying that she's like uh, demure and, and shy. She's quite the opposite. She's a, she's a force of will in the movie and is completely captivating. Um, and, uh, uh, definitely I, I've always had problems with straw dogs. Um, but maybe I was, I was moralizing too much at the time. When I saw it, maybe I could mm. relax a little bit more uh, uh, when I watch Star Dogs now. Yeah, it's but, pretty, still pretty rough. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but this is just a pure fun movie. Except, and I won't give too much away about the ending. Also has some of that fatalism, despite it being a fun smoking the bandit type movie. Um, it also has kind of a down ending. Hmm. Speaking of which, moving forward to 1975, once again teeming with Warren Oates. Race with the Devil. I thought you were saying teaming T E M I. This movie is overflowing with Warren Oates. It's just fucking crawling with with Warren Oates. No, um, this time um, um, Peter Fonda and Warren Oates play. Wait, what was it called again? Uh, Race with the Devil. Race with the Devil. Nineteen seventy-five. They play. Um, motorcycle it's a it goes back to being a bike movie mm-hmm. but they're a little bit older they own a motorcycle shop now they've done kind of they've started to do well for themselves so they decide with their wives um played by laura parker and loretta swit oh. hot lips from yeah. the tv version of mash um to uh buy an rv and go on a, a road trip through like up to texas and into colorado mm-hmm. um and then the but unfortunately the first night um they while they are parked out in this remote area they witness a satanic ritual and satanic sacrifice so this is uh it's a horror movie it's a lot of it's also kind of more like the dirty mary sure chase car action movie but it's a horror movie too there's a there's probably a couple of rattlesnakes that is like super tense um yeah there was i was watching it being like just get this over with because it's like it's <laughs> tense and it's tense for a long time yeah um but uh yeah w- once again you've got a, a 
uh, a fun, um, suspenseful movie, um, in which he plays, he's already, I mean, this is 1975 at this point. This is, um, almost a decade after the wild angels. Mm-hmm. The fact that he and Warnode's characters are not supposed to be young hotshots anymore. There are like aging hotshots yeah. already. Um, you, you're seeing some Although of what Peter Fonda is not, I mean, he's not necessarily young, but he's not necessarily old either. No, but I, but I, 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 I'm just saying you're, you're seeing the progression of sure. Uh, um, I guess, the fact of whatever he represents, uh, I guess his persona at this point is becoming postmodern about it or about itself, you know, like it's a, he's self-aware. And so he has to play this other variation of Mm -hmm. like someone who's just maybe a step past what he used to be. Um, and then is sort of called up into being sort of the badass hotshot again when there's a bunch of Satanists trying to kill him and his family. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but again, you've got this friendship thing, uh, going on. And again, uh, I don't want to give up spoilers, but again, you've got some of the, the, the fatalism, uh, uh, going on. Uh, yeah. Race with the devil. Race with the devil is really cool. I, I was, uh, one of the many things I saw today that I was uh, not today, uh, in, re- in preparation for this episode that I was surprised at. And then, now I've got a long gap. I'm not sure when your next one is. I, next one for me is 1997. Oh, okay. So I'm going to keep talking then. Yeah. Um, but I have a uh, long gap. Hang on. Is that true? That might... Uh, sorry, you go ahead. Well, I don't want to go back. No, it's... Uh, I'm sure it's fine. Okay. So next week... So we go almost 20 years from 1975 to 1994 to Love in a 45, which... Oh, okay. I don't know if you've seen it don't know i heard it was very bad it's very very bad it is the bottom of the barrel epitome of the worst of american 90s crime indies okay it's just gil bellows plays a um professional uh thief who just robs liquor stores um but you know has a code Mm -hmm. uh where he never uh loads his gun and also he is into eastern philosophy and he makes decisions by Ugh. throwing the I Ching. yep Ugh. um renee zelliger plays uh i don't know his girlfriend boy this just ha- this is just everything rory cochran rory cochran and i renee like zelliger. i like rory cochran in so many things but he is not good in this well and it's just but you've like got the, wiley, Jeffrey Combs. wiley wiggins is wiley in, this? in the opening scene oh, it does wow. feel like a movie that like the opening scene is kind of like especially at the time 1994 this what like that sort of that sort of pop culture type of thing wasn't fully you know we weren't immersed in it yet the the opening scene this robbery at the of this liquor store actually is kind of cool and it almost feels like uh cm talkington is that the director's Uh, name yes that he like had this written as a scene study or like a short film or whatever and then just sort of made something up for the rest of the 90 minutes or whatever. The opening scene is the only thing that's really worthwhile. I see uh, that, even with uh, Jeffrey Combs, Jack Nance is in it as is Michael Bowen. Um, Oh yeah. Oh, Oh yeah. Michael Bowen is not in it very long. Jack oh. Nance is a, right. yeah, he's a good character. Um, but yeah, just descri- uh, the way you're describing it's like, Oh, I it's very it's, bad. It's that's very nineties. And then, yeah. Um, Peter Fonda. Now here we're full on. We, we jumped 20 years. We're full on into the, persona he plays renee zelliger's dad who is a former hippie who speaks with a voice one of those voice box things not because mm-hmm. he lost his throat his voice box or larynx or whatever to cancer but because during a bad acid trip he ripped his throat out oh yeah 
<laughs> so he talks with one of those with one of those things. This is he says far out in the movie. This is one of the movies I was gonna. Uh, there are three. I hope I remember to mention all three of them. Where he says far out. So um, yeah, my my point of confusion was the movie Deadfall, which is 1993, which I saw. I did watch back in high school. Oh okay. Um, I remember nothing nothing of it. So I guess you know what that's probably that's probably the first thing I saw. Peter Fonda in, but I had no connection to him. I didn't know who he was. In fact, like looking at, looking at this cast now, it's like, Oh, James Coburn is in this. And, uh, Charlie Sheen, Talia Shire's in this. Cause it's a Christopher Coppola movie, Mickey Dolan's like, I don't think I had any concept of who these people were, but I was into like crazy ass nineties crime dramas, uh, crime movies like Pulp Fiction. And so I, heard that like oh Nicolas Cage is in this weird thing and so I watched it and so let's see I'm looking at the Academy yeah. Award winner Nick Vallelonga isn't it oh right it's <laughs> <laughs> like what the hell are you talking about I mean Nicolas Cage won an Oscar too oh I see what you're doing um, but uh, yeah I remember almost nothing about it I remember Nicolas Cage's crazy bewigged performance uh, and uh, mustachioed I believe yes okay um that's really all I remember. I don't remember when I think back, I hate to say it. I don't remember Peter Fonda at all, but that is my failing, not his. Well, I wish I could forget Peter Fonda and everything else about 1996's escape from LA. The worst John Carpenter, <laughs> John Carpenter movie. Um, have you seen escape from LA? I've seen the clip where he's surfing with, uh, uh, snake Plissken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Snake Plissken in this movie surfs, plays basketball for his life and hang glides it's like a it's like an extreme sports movie it does feel like i guess like mid 90s maybe it was like the studio saying like the kids like extreme sports put some (laughs) put some sports in it and it it almost but like having so much of it in the movie almost feels like john carpenter like all right I'm just going to ruin my movie. What do you think of that? I'm just going to ruin it with the stuff you it want. It didn't have that far to go. It's okay. not a good, it's a not a good movie. It's also like, I know times change and effects change, but like watching it now, it's like, how did audiences tolerate how bad the visual effects are? I don't think they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, you're making some assumptions there. It is. So like that surfing scene, it so clearly looks, it looks like South park, like paper cutout art, like, yeah. like oh, here's the wave. And then here's the two surfers. And like, or like clearly that, not uh, in the same space. That 66, uh, Batman where Batman and Joker, uh, did a surfing competition. It, uh, reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is another movie where he says far out. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah, he plays a surfer, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, 1996, also Grace of My Heart. That's a voice-only cameo. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I get the impression that it might have been a character that was cut from the movie, but they they reduced that second segment of the movie to a montage. Oh, all right. He plays... It would have been nice to see because he, uh, the character is named Guru Dave. He's a guru slash maybe cult leader. Oh, okay. Um, Grace of My Heart is an odd movie. Not great. Um, but good cat. You got Ileana Douglas plays a, uh, songwriter in the fifties and sixties who then basically lives through the sixties. And it's, uh, Grace, my heart is also a fascinating, like, uh, pre woke version of nineties liberalism. Like okay. that Ileana Douglas's character seems to touch like in her songwriting and the people she comes in contact with seems to meet, like she seems to touch on every, 
um, sort of feminist issue, like teen pregnancy and abortion and abusive relationships and all these things she touches on by meeting other people who are involved in them. Um, and yet her, Ilana Douglas's characters like privilege that like, cause she comes from a very wealthy family mm-hmm. is not only not really remarked upon. The only way it is remarked upon is that it's, almost treated as something that she has to overcome. Like oh, that's okay. her struggle. Like these young, like the young Puerto Rican woman who's, uh, who, who's, uh, uh, a 12 year old girl whose 16 year old boyfriend knocked her up and then left her. She's got that. Sure. Eliana Douglas has to go overcome her parents, uh, like steel mill full of fortune or whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, weird has, movie. This has a good cast, good cast, Bridget good Fonda. music. A lot of original music was written for it. Bruce Davison, the always great Bruce Davison. Uh, um, yeah, Eric Stoltz, Eric John Stoltz. Turturro. Yeah. Um, mm. Matt Dillon as Brian Wilson. is not Brian Wilson, but he's Got playing it. Brian Wilson. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, that's, that's 1996. Next up is 1997 and Yuli's Gold, which I've yeah. seen once 20 years ago, so maybe you want to take it. I've seen it a few times. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think I first saw it because like I was 15 in 97. I was getting into like 95, 96. I was starting to take movies more seriously and I was watching older movies, 97 and 98, but 97 especially. That was when I realized that, oh, there are good movies being made now. And so that's when I just like drank stuff in, uh, still tremendously limited, but you know, I was 15, but I was watching like, I'm watching like sweet hereafter and wag the dog and LA confidential and goodwill hunting and all that stuff that other people my age weren't watching. Um, and I also started following awards at that time Hmm. and I saw, so I watched the golden globes and if I recall correctly, Jack Nicholson got the best actor award for comedy and Peter Fonda got it for drama. And that means that he had to beat out Robert Duvall for the apostle, which I saw and loved. Um, and so I was like, what is this Yuli's gold movie? And who is Peter Fonda? Um, and so I went and, uh, rented it and it was definitely intriguing. It was, it's more of a straightforward drama and, it took me a while to catch on to what he was doing as an actor and why it was award worthy. That was the other thing. Hmm. Um, because when you're young, best often equates to most. And so like big performances are, are how I could recognize good acting or sort of mannered performances. Um, and he just seemed to kind of be existing and, before I get further into it, I will say, I think I've told this story before, but it is, this is my association with Yuli's gold that, um, well, aside from the movie itself, uh, Yuli's gold is the movie that I was watching in my basement when my mom came tromping down the stairs because she had gotten a call from my math teacher because I had not turned in homework for three weeks. And, <laughs> and so she comes down she's like, what are you? And it was a Sunday night. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, just watching a movie here. She's like, I got a call from your, ma- from your math teacher. And I know, and in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, shit, here we go. And she's like, three weeks. You haven't turned in three weeks and you're sitting here watching movies. And so like, wow, when she I, was like Henry Hill's dad. 
Exa- he exactly. He has a bit of that school. <laughs> two months. It's a two months. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Yeah, I don't remember. But uh, I think back on that and think to like, I can't think. That is a perfect image of my youth in wow. microcosm is that I was blowing off the stuff I had to do, but not so that I could go and smoke weed or something like that. <laughs> so that I could watch Yuli's <laughs> gold in yeah. my alone in my basement. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So the film is, well, I don't think I ever went three weeks without turning in homework. That's well, you have to not care. I mean, I didn't care. Yeah. Um, I was thinking recently about, uh, you know, uh, I've mentioned before that my wife and I don't plan on having children. I was mm -hmm. thinking about like, there's a lot of different reasons, some of them very deep and some of them very shallow, why I don't think that having kids is good for me. And one that's somewhere in between deep and shallow is that I don't like the idea of making someone go to school. I hated school and I would feel bad making someone go to school. Yeah, I hope that my students never listen to this uh, <laughs> while they're enrolled in my class, because what I will say is that, that my math teacher, Mr. Simpson, I actually liked him a lot. Um, he was a, he was a really good teacher, and I really got the impression that he cared, clearly cared. And, and it's high school, so that's different than college. But, um, you know, I, I assign work, and if a kid is not turning in their work, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that just means they're going to fail. I'm not oh, going to call. I'm not going to email them or anything oh, like well, that. Well, that's the difference between high school and college. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, but that's the other thing is also because so much of the class, so many of the classes, in fact, this entire semester, I'm only teaching high schoolers getting college credit. So I don't know if maybe they are assuming I'm going to contact them because they're not, because there are a couple people that have not turned in a lot of assignments and, uh, and I'm not going to do that. It's mm. uh, they got to get they got to be ready. Do you remember? That reminds me. We'll get back to Peter Fonda in a second. But do you remember? I'm not sure how far into Friday Night Lights the series did you get? Did you get to season three? Season two. That was it. Oh, okay. So season three, he starts as a college coach. He college oh, yeah, and this yeah. character leaves uh, high school and starts as a college coach. And there's a part where he uh, he's an assistant coach at the college. And there's a part where he is sort of getting involved in one of his players like personal problems and, mm-hmm. and lives and his boss the head coach says to him i bet you were a great high school football coach and does not mean it as a compliment <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but that's what you made me think of right there is that yeah, once you're in college like they don't yeah, yeah. it's just about show up do the work or yeah. don't it's on you you're an adult now yeah it's I, when i say i don't care it's not that i i mean i care about them as individuals of course but at the same time like i i have a bunch of students to yeah. keep track of if yeah. someone's not turning in their stuff this isn't to serve with love over here I, I i've had um i mean it's what's fascinating to me i've had students that come for the first week and then they don't show up for the rest of the they get an f but they don't drop the class. They don't drop the class? No. I have two students like that right now. Like I was, I was, I was, uh, oh, updating. I hope they're okay. Gra- I hope they're okay as well. Um, <laughs> it's not maybe your problem. Should, it's not my problem. <laughs> um, my problem is the people that, because sh- there are people that say like, you know, there was a last semester I had a, I had a, a student who uh, had a death in the family. So it's like, I'll check in with him. Yeah. Say, Hey, how's it going? You doing okay? Uh, but yeah, if you, if you aren't going to show up at all, then, uh, yeah, I got nothing. So let's uh, move on to 1999. Well, line. hang on, hang on. I didn't talk about Yuli's gold. Oh, I thought you did. I didn't actually. Um, it's. I talked a lot hey, around. You said he was good in the movie. I talked a lot around Yuli. Yes, I did. But <laughs> I haven't said anything in this episode yet. So okay. um, 
it is a very quiet wounded performance the character is a is a vietnam vet and you get the impression not that he was probably a bundle of energy before that but you really get the impression like he's fragile Mm -hmm. not in a way that he's going to bust out crying or anything like that but you can just see he's just a very careful person in the way that he carries himself he he was married he has children uh and then one of his and his son is in jail and he is he's uh taking care of his grandchildren and you really first off i don't know if if peter fonda actually has grand uh, had grandchildren but he nails the dynamic even though he is essentially he's their primary guardian he nails like the way a grandfather deals with like a young granddaughter you know and his moments with his family and his moments alone are just so it is a fully lived in character um i love watching him i like spending time with the character you know, and that's not a thing that I feel very often. Like I'm bummed that Yuli doesn't exist mm. because I want him to, <laughs> um, and I want to hang out with him. And uh, it's just a, a a really it's a lovely little movie, and it is a marvelous, perf- a marvelous understated performance. And I, my favorite actor is Robert Duvall, and I love him in The Apostle. And for years, I would say, well, he absolutely should have won. I'm torn mm. the more I think about Yuli's Gold and what I value as as a film lover in a performance. And it really is a, a, just a it's a film people don't really talk about. Maybe people you and I at our age do because we're probably of a certain age when it was released. Mm-hmm. And so but it's not a film anyone really talks about. And that is a bummer. I feel like listeners, if you haven't seen Yuli's Gold, check it out. I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but I think about Yuli's Gold often one very specific thing okay. that sometimes when I'm super thirsty, I will pour a big glass of water and drink the entire <laughs> the glass of water at once. And he does that in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, Who's is it? Patricia, Patricia Richardson, Richardson from Richardson. Uh, Home Improvement. Yeah, uh, comments on it. All right. Um, okay, the limey. Here's so here's what I want to say about the limey, uh, and then I'll, I'll let you talk more because okay. uh, you've certainly seen it more often than I have. But only five years between Love and a Forty Five and the limey, and we're seeing a very different idea of former hippies or aging hippies. Mm-hmm. We're seeing one that I think has become the dominant idea. Whereas before in 11 to 45 or something like flirting with disaster, uh, you see like, Oh, they're, you know, they're still living in the past, yeah. but they're like harmless and cute. Harmless. And yeah. yeah. And at a certain point, I think the, the, the view of these, of former hippies and other baby boomers changed to like, Oh, they all, gave up what they represented, which mm-hmm. goes back to the fatalism we were talking about in the sixties and seventies. So now we've got, or, the, we've got Terry Valentine who is, uh, sorry, let me finish. Um, uh, you know, sixties era hotshot movie producer. And now he couldn't be less of a hippie. Now he's yeah. the man and he's, he's, he's still got some of the like <laughs> swinging sort of behavior of the, of the sixties guy. And, and he probably thinks that's enough to make him still cool, but, uh, he's, uh, not cool and he's not the good guy anymore. Yeah. Uh, he is a music producer, not a movie producer in, oh, yeah. in the film, but, um, I don't yeah. think I said producer. I think I'm, you said, well, yeah. I didn't say movie. I said producer. You said movie producer. I no, heard you. No, I didn't. I'm going to punch you in the face. Um, Maybe I did. Uh, I feel like I know what I said. Listeners, 
comments. If I wish I could stop right now because now I'm, now I'm like, maybe you were right. Um, anyway, but the the reason that I that I mentioned that is because obviously there are '60s movies, but people identify a lot more with like the music, and so you talk about the idea of like giving up on their ideals. The character of Terry Valentine, he didn't just he didn't give up. He traded on them. Mm-hmm. He traded on right. his image as this '60s icon, and then and there's a moment where, not to speak ill of Christopher Cross uh, from the '80s, but there's a scene in uh, the Limey where a character at a party is talking about a Christopher Cross album that Terry Valentine produced, yeah. and that I've heard Christopher Cross, and it's perfectly fine, but you don't get further from the 60s than that, yeah. in my opinion. Hold on, I need to find out if Christopher Cross is still alive. Okay. Uh, yes, he is still alive, um, and would probably, at the age, the age of 68, not like you referring to him as Christopher Cross from the 80s. <laughs> oh, probably not, no. I think of him as, as from the 80s. No, but I'm just saying, right? he's still alive. Yeah. He's from the now, too. <laughs> Well, that goes back to that wonderful, uh, that wonderful Jiminy Glick where, uh, where he goes, he goes, please welcome my guest from the nineties, Jerry Seinfeld. That's right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, it it is a great role, Terry Valentine, Mm -hmm. because he's absolutely a sellout. Uh, I guess not to necessarily cast judgment on somebody who chooses to do this, but he's dating someone way younger than him so much so that he talks he talks to her about like her name and that it sounds as though he's the one that suggested her name to her parents (laughs) meaning right like you know he was there for the pregnancy and you know infancy and all that and it's like okay she's old enough now let's do this um and so he's he is not who plays her Someone who isn't Denise Richards. That's that's that's, that's what I remember is that, yeah. uh, that I think I watched the whole movie thinking she was Denise Richards. She looks a lot like Denise Richards, um, but uh, um, yeah, the character's name is Edhara or something like that. Amelia Henley is the actress's name. Yeah, I have no idea who that is. I feel bad. I mean, I I always feel bad. Oh, with she, like, well, she's doing fine. She's been on The Young and the Restless oh, since cool. two thousand five. How many episodes of The Young and the Restless do you think she's done? Since 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 two thousand five, two thousand five, five hundred, one thousand eight hundred sixteen. They do five yeah. a week for yeah, fourteen they years. Sure do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was at the gym uh, today. In fact, and young and the, the young and the restless was on, and uh, and I recognized. I've never seen an episode of it, but you know, you just recognize magazines from when you're standing at the grocery store and like, wow, that guy with the mustache is still on. I guess, (laughs) you know, you don't, if you got a good gig, you you don't turn it down. But, uh, no, the character of Terry Valentine, he's so complex because he's super charming. The character is likable. Uh, but you also realize just how vapid he is and all of that. But there are moments of introspection. Um, there's that wonderful moment where he's talking to his, probably 30 or 40 year younger girlfriend. Um, and he's talking about the, the vibe of the sixties and maybe this is a thing he said a million times, maybe not, but there is a moment there at the end and he pauses and he goes, but it wasn't really the sixties. It was 
1967, early 1968. Like he just, he, like he's even able to say like, yeah, there was like a good year and a half. And so like, he can't even really fully trade on it when he's being honest with himself. But Peter Fonda like plays into it, play is able to play a character who isn't really that introspective and is a little bit entitled. Yeah. Um, he has a monologue about dental hygiene. (laughs) Well, on the commentary, the character doesn't. Oh, that's right. Um, but he does. He is. That's right. During that monologue in which he's talk pontificating about the 60s, right, he's, he's using this plastic toothpick. Yeah, that's right. OK, he doesn't talk about it. OK, right. But in the commentary, so that's which, what I'm saying. It's been a long time since I watched it in the commentary. Uh, Peter Fonda talked about like he's like that monologue has too much poetry in it. He's like. So I want, as an actor, I wanted to try and take some of the poetry out of it. So I thought, well, I and he's like, I carry, he goes, I want to, I think he said like, I want to exit this world with all my teeth. So I carry these little <laughs> toothpicks with me everywhere. And so I had one with me and, uh, he goes, and I start doing that while I'm giving the monologue. He goes, and then afterwards I do this little, this little like oh, suck right. of my teeth. He goes, and that sucked the drama right the poetry right out of it uh and so like that's the thing is like peter found it there there are certain actors that for whatever reason they just seem so genuine Mm -hmm. i can't imagine them making actorly decisions the one my go-to is harrison ford for like he's an actor he's Mm -hmm. been acting for years but i can't imagine him sitting down and thinking about the process of acting and that has to do with just his persona and the types of parts he plays and so like to hear peter fonda being like this is too poetic Mm -hmm. i want to you know some some actors would be like yes here's my opportunity to be poetic but he's like no this doesn't quite fit with the character i'm creating i'm gonna try and undercut it as much as i can and it's just it's a thoughtful and i think a very uh unselfish uh decision all right. Uh, 2007's a big year in some ways. Um, oh, wait. Sorry. Uh, in 2000, there's South oh, of Heaven, oh, right. West of Hell. That's right. I've, in my head, you'd already talked about it. Right. I specifically did not. Yeah. yeah. This is essentially one of the cameo performance type things he's in it for. I mean, he's, a, you know what? That's not necessarily true. I'd say it's a supporting performance, but like maybe like third tier. Um, it's This is a very quirky mostly subpar Western. Uh, but in it, he plays a guy who it's, and it takes place in the early 1900s. So like there's kind of these, there are changes coming. Uh, you see characters watching, uh, the great train robbery and all that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, Peter Fonda's character is like a, a hot air balloon enthusiast. Like he's sort of like, I don't, I don't remember if the, if the hot air balloon is just like ever present outside this small town and then like people can go up in it for about 50 feet and then yeah. they bring them back down. Um, yeah, but that was he's the, the thing. He's the guy um, who kind of runs it and there's a real, again, just a real like, so he's like his surfer character from escape. From exactly. LA. <laughs> he's yes. a thrill seeker. Uh, but he, he stays on the ground and he kind of controls okay. the ropes so that it doesn't go up too high. And he just seems like a very, just a benevolent guy. Again, there's just a very natural genuineness to him that, uh, just screams to me like reality. And, and I don't know, it's, a. Uh, the movie's not that great and he's there's not there's not much to his performance except just him being there and just living just kind of adds an air of authenticity to everything that's happening but uh all right 2007 ghostwriter 
Yes. Okay. I've never seen it, but you have. Yeah, I wish I hadn't, but uh, I did. I've heard the sequel is better. <laughs> How could it not be? <laughs> um, I'm probably over. I'm probably overstating. Um, how bad it is. But what I will say is that this is a movie about ghost rider, obviously who rides a motorcycle. So let's get Peter Fonda in there because we associate him with motorcycles <laughs> and he's going to play the villain Mephistopheles. And I hate to say everything that I said about Yuli's gold, everything that I said about, uh, South of, of heaven, West of hell, everything that I've said about, Peter Fonda as a naturalistic actor is exactly why he shouldn't have played this character. <laughs> I hate to say it, but like in the midst of like, it's really stupid over the top writing. The imagery is very, uh, you know, early 2000 superhero action type thing. And he just, you know, if, if you twist it just a little bit, he's kind of a grounding influence, but he's also the villain or he's a villain. Okay. Um, and he's Mephistopheles. Like it's a huge thing. Uh, and clearly they're trying to sort of undercut some of the comic book imagery of that character. And they just make him kind of a Western type, uh, uh, villain, but he just, I was curious. The reason I chose to watch this in preparation for this episode is because I was interested to see if he was going to ham it up because I knew that he was going to have to like the villain. Sh- sorry, the, our hero should not be way more over the top than the villain, especially when the villain is Mephistopheles. <laughs> um, and so it's, I feel bad saying that, that uh, Peter Fonda is, is bad in this movie. He just shouldn't have been cast. Like, it's just not... I think he was cast solely because of his association with Easy Rider. And I think he doesn't... Good for him that he's not able to be shitty enough to make the part work. But they, <laughs> they could have they could have put somebody else in there. Frankly, they could have put Dennis Hopper in there. And he could have speed uh, Waterworld Super Mario Brothers yeah. that thing. And uh, done pretty good stuff. Well, I'm sure the Easy Rider thing is also why he's in Wild Hogs, which neither of us has seen. But would you remember on one of our live shows okay. at Meltdown Comics, back when that still existed, before Nerdist took it over and then now it's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say, Stephen Tobol- if I'm remembering correctly, Stephen Tobolowsky told a story about MC Ganey stealing Peter Fonda's bandana <laughs> <laughs> while they were making Wild Hogs. I do not remember that. You but, remember uh, that? No, it's... I remember him doing that amazing, telling that amazing story about being on Mississippi burning and like yeah. the person that I think like one of the, no, not the people like the head of that chapter of the KKK, like happened to talk to him in a bookstore or something like that. Oh, that was a good story. Yes. You know, it might've been the Sklar brothers who told the story about MC Ganey stealing Peter Fonda's band. We really had sounds- so many people from, Wild Hogs on the live show. Steven Tobolowsky and both scars. Well, that scars. was my goal. I don't know. I don't think I mentioned <laughs> to that eventually to get the yeah, entire cast. Exactly. I would love to have MC Ganey on the podcast. That would be great. Big yeah. MC Ganey fan. Okay, so I haven't seen Three Ten to Yuma since I think you and I saw it in the theater. Okay, yeah. So I, I know he's seen it since then. He's in it. I don't remember who he is. He plays. It's interesting. It's a supporting role, um, and he is dispatched pretty quickly. Okay, he's a Pinkerton. Okay, who. Has it out rightfully? I mean, Russell Crowe's character is a villain, um, and so you've got this posse that is escorting Russell Crowe to uh, this train, and you've got 
Oh, he's not the first dispatch. Kevin Durand is the, is it Kevin Durand, right? That's his name. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, and then not Kevin Durant, right? He was yes. a basketball player. Kevin Durand. Oh no, it's Kevin Durant. No, it's uh, <laughs> they took a, an odd turn with three ten to Yuma, but it's, so it's Kevin Durand. It's, um, Peter Fonda. What's his name? Dallas, uh, Dallas something. I don't remember his name. It's not Dallas Hallam. That's an acquaintance of ours. Yeah. Um, not hockey player Dallas Eakins. Damn, I forget his name. But uh, but yeah, so you've got this small posse, and the one like the one character that has like real history with Russell Crowe's character is uh, Peter Fonda, and he's just like old and grizzled, and you just he just looks miserable. Like the character, I mean, you just get the impression that he's just miserable, and there I feel like there's also kind of a a sadness there uh and so there comes a moment where where his character you kind of feel like he's going to be there for the duration and uh and then so kevin durand is killed and then there comes a moment where russell crowe sees an opportunity and like throws uh peter fonda's character like off a cliff and he's just gone we don't see we don't see him fall we just see him go over and that's it and right it's now. so out of it's it's really surprising because this character because he has the this weight to him just as an older guy who has a history and a sort of an, a vendetta against Russell Crowe you feel like he's you feel like he's going to be kind of a, again a stabilizing influence as i said he could have been with ghostwriter um but no uh the the it's not exactly Janet Lee and psycho, but the removal of him so early mm-hmm. shows just how dangerous Russell Crowe is and how alone Christian Bale is the, like the people that are most equipped to help right. him are being removed quickly. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a really solid supporting role. It's a good movie all around, but, uh, I like him in that quite a bit. Is that your last one? Uh, no, Okay. I also have, yeah, uh, it's, the other two are, are very small roles. Um, okay. And one is essentially like a, a funny cameo as himself. Well, I'm jumping to 2013. What do you have? Uh, 2013, I've got some, I have something there, yes. What, what do you have? I have The Harvest. Oh, yes. I also have The Harvest. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, not I'm a good talking. movie at all. Um, it is a John McNaughton tepid horror thriller that yeah. it looks like John McNaughton directed in his sleep and edited in his sleep. Uh, it definitely feels. It, yeah, I hypnotic. really don't like it. It's the third movie in which um, the, uh, today that in which uh, Peter Fonda says far out. Mm. Did you see it recently? Not recently. No. Okay. Yeah. It has the epilogue is if it were, if anyone cared, I'm sure no one cares about spoilers, but if anyone had seen it, we could talk for 20 minutes about the last scene of the movie and how stupid it is and how mm-hmm. much it doesn't make sense to me. But, uh, yeah, he says far out. It's like the last line of the movie yeah. <laughs> in a way. Um, I like, I like the performance of the parents. I think Michael Shannon, Samantha Morton, I think they do a fine enough job, but again, but I John Cotton's not doing them any favors though. He isn't like, he just doesn't seem that he seems, he seems bored. As yeah. A I mean, th- there's parts where Samantha Morton is like freaking out and the, the movie is not, yeah attempting to match or comment on her energy it's at as all. Though the movie is saying, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Okay. So that's when we had next up for me is 2017. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess. Oh, mine is 2016, and okay, it's just it? it's just a it's a cameo of as himself on documentary now. Okay, um, in the episode that is meant to be like. Uh, the kid stays in the picture. Okay. And so you have these various, uh, people like actual celebrities from, and it's from that time. And they're, uh, giving funny interviews about like this, this character. And Peter Fonda is a guy who's just kind of like, he, he seems to think of the character fondly, but then is kind of, I think, piss like remembers something that pisses him off but the more memorable cameo honestly is peter bogdanovich who says like i made a bet with him years ago and if i lost oh, that's right i'd have to wear this uh what is it cravat a cravat uh, yeah. my whole life and well we saw how that turned out um okay uh 2017 the ballad of lefty brown not a great movie it's a very small part but kind of a crucial one um in which uh i'm trying to remember Peter Fonda, the, the backstory of the, within the movie is that Peter Fonda and, um, I'm, trying, I'm looking at Tommy Flanagan, Jim Caviezel and Bill Pullman were all like outlaws together, like hmm. years and years before. And, um, the rest of them have sort of graduated to respectability and Lefty Brown played by Bill Pullman is still hmm. kind of like a drunk or whatever. Okay. And then, uh, but it, but uh, he's still best friends with Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda, spoiler, gets killed in like the opening scene. Oh, all right. And so then this guy who, if this were a Western that took place in their younger lives, this guy who would have been the comic relief of the movie is suddenly forced into the hero role. Um, it's a good premise for a movie, not a great movie. But uh, yeah, I think um, uh, Peter Fonda is sort of like... Uh, stature and presence is well used in his his opening and closing scene and then 2018 boundaries is a very bad movie um but you've got uh christopher Plummer and uh peter fonda sharing uh, christopher Plummer's in the whole movie peter fonda has one sort of extended it's maybe a little too long to be a cameo but it's pretty much just a cameo um in which they are the sort of ex-hippies who are still mm into drugs and shit. <laughs> so like there's a scene of Christopher Plummer and, uh, Peter Fonda, like doing drugs together. Um, Oh wow. Christopher Lloyd's in this Kristen Shaw, Bobby Cannavale. Well, are we talking about what movie? Boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah. Very bad movie. Very bad. Oh, that's movie. unfortunate. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's it. That's Peter Fonda. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that I did, some research uh, and saw some movies, even though some of them were very bad, like The Harvest. There's a uh, some of them were very good, like uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, which has <laughs> become. I forgot to tell I me mean, like it's so. I, I I mentioned the PG thing, but it's like the movie, the movie is so vulgar in so many ways that I can't believe it wasn't R. But uh, like he threatens to break every bone in her, every bone in her crotch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, he also threatens to braid her tits. <laughs> he says, if you do that again, I'm going to braid your tits. It's like there's this, this kind of talk throughout this movie. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, I, I'm glad I after I feel like we spent the last I've, 10 I've minutes heard, talking about bad movies. So I've I wanted to go back dirtier to your talk. And yet somehow that sounds worse. They're both really gross. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, again, it's him playing, uh, the 
hero in the sense that he's the protagonist, but not a good guy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And so to kind of sum up, yeah, it is unfortunate that like, as often happens with actors, like as they get older, like they just, there, there aren't really a lot of great roles for them. uh, And so they just kind of take what's, what's there and maybe they enjoy it. I mean, you know, was it Ballad of Lefty Brown? Yeah. Like uh, I heard middling things about it, but uh, he definitely seemed to be fond of Westerns along mm-hmm. with the road movies, understandably so. Um, and when you think about it, like, okay, so what's the, what's the, the link between the two? And it's this idea of freedom. It's this right. idea of like going out and starting over and living life on your terms and all that. And so the fact that his getting career, loaded. what was that? Getting, getting loaded. loaded. The fact that his career is kind of associated with that, um, and even even the character in Yuli's Gold has kind of removed himself from society. He makes his living like the Yuli's Gold is is the brand of honey that he makes. So he like oh okay he like ten he's a beekeeper essentially. So he's just doesn't really like people and just stays away from them. And so like I like that there's this idea. If you look at his career, there's this idea of striving for individuality and freedom, but with an understanding that. We, we might actually by we it's like the people that strive for that like if we don't we're going to screw that up along the way if we don't screw it up completely we we could actually just blow it you know and so like there's a fatalism there but i think there's also you could also say it's just almost like philosophically cautious like while while everybody else in the 60s is like let's do it let's do this He's just like, yeah, but what is that going to look like? And I think we need to be careful because uh, these Hells Angels guys, they also want to do whatever they want. And we've seen what that looks like, you know. So I I don't know. I feel like uh, there's a in talking about him as an actor, it also means talking about him as an icon. And I feel like he has always had and in interviews that I've seen as well and in comment on commentaries and stuff. He seemed to have a really interesting perspective on the kind of icon he was and seemed to like devote his career, not to undercutting it, but to giving a caveat and be like, well, hang on now. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's think this through. That's a good, that's a good summation. Um, all right. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. I don't know what's on the website this week because I um, have been too busy with work to update the website this week. Um, Tyler, uh, you're on Twitter at TylerPretension. I am. Anything you need to plug this week? Uh, not that I can think of. No. All right. Um, I want to mention the Patreon, uh, oh, sure. this week on the Patreon. I don't know. What did we do this week? I forget which one came out this week. Uh, this was our, our TV journal and it's been a long oh, time. Oh yeah. Since we talked about that, a lot so. of TV. So that was actually a, a, a long episode for the Patreon. We usually try to end around 45 minutes. That one was about an hour and five. So. Yeah, we had a lot, of, a lot of TV to talk about. We, we talked about uh, uh, New Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beginning of the final season is Silicon Valley. The end of the final season of The Deuce. A uh, bunch of other stuff in between. Talk about Survivor and Mindhunter and all kinds yeah. of stuff. Uh, so check that out. Uh, Patreon. Uh, you can find the Patreon link on the left side of the BattleshipRetention.com homepage. So thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.